0: You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation. As well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Dr. Jacqueline Couty. She is a Lawrence H. Fabrat Professor of French Studies at Rice University. Her research and teaching interests delve into the transatlantic and transnational interconnections between cultural productions from continental France, and it's now Former Colonies. A central theme of her research is how local knowledge in the colonial and post-colonial eras has shaped the literatures and the cultural awareness of the self in former French colonies through specific representations of sexuality. She is the author of Dangerous Creole Liaisons, published in 2016, as well as Lumina Sophie, 19th Century Martinique, found in Women Claiming Freedom, Gender, Race, and Liberty in the Americas. In this conversation, we discuss Sex, Sea, and Self, Sexuality and Nationalism in French Caribbean Discourses from 1924 to 1948 published by Liverpool University Press in 2021. Our conversation here focuses on key concepts and arguments in the book where she puts metropolitan France and the French Caribbean in dialogue, exploring constructions of gender, race, sexuality, identity, politics, and nationalism. So we're here with Dr. Kuti today. Um, Thank you for joining us. So as usual, um, when we start off these conversations, we want to know um, the origins of the project. So a sort of invitation to narrate us into the project, how you came into it. Um, are there were, were there any concerns, personal, ethical, philosophical, that drew you to the questions in sex see, and self? So why this project and why now? Dr. Dravinsky always has this cool spiel that I can't really do, but how you know when you write a book, it takes over your life. So yes, <laughs> so please let us know a little bit more.
1: Thank you so much, Fatima. I really appreciate uh, the invitation, and I'm looking forward um, to talking to you today. So. I think to talk about this project, I'm going a little bit to talk about the organization of the book, uh, because literally I was trying to be thoughtful about the content and the form, and I wanted both to reflect uh, each other. So the book is divided in two parts, she says, he says, and these titles are come to discussions I had with my grand, grandparents on my ma- maternal side, and we were talking about Anton Robet, uh, this period, which is the Vichy period, uh, 1940, 1933, uh, um in Martinique, and my grandmother hated this period. She talked about scarcity, how horrible it was, and my, grand, uh, my grandfather, who was a sailor at the time, he was on a, you know, on a big boat, his life was golden. So there are two different visions of the same event. So I realized that if I want to talk about history, I want to take into account that a particular historical moment can be perceived and lived different ways depending of gender, but also the kind of activities you're doing and uh, you know, your kind of social class. So that was you know, some of the concern I had for this particular um, text, and also when I think about so, and at the same time, it's personal uh, because you know I was talking to my grandparents, mm-hmm. and I wanted them to be in the text without being in the text. Mm-hmm. So the two uh, titles, uh, in a way, um, is is a part of that, and shows also my commitment to gendered approaches, and also. Uh, feminist approaches without simply saying, oh, I'm going to look about gender and I'm going to have a feminist approach. Uh, I wanted this in the form and uh, content uh, to be uh, very uh, important. The second element, apart from gender um, and, you know, a feminist approach, was how to deal with the text. So, you know, lately on Twitter, there's a big, you know, like, there's always a, a little drama about people saying, I've discovered those texts that no one knew about. And I was like, I don't want to deal with that. Um, yeah. You know, I, want, I don't want to say simply that those texts are unknown. They're unknown because we don't know them. And as literary critic, we don't do the work. So most of the time I was thinking about, okay, maybe I could say neglected. I could say understudied, but not that, oh, I discovered them and like, you know, I'm so special. Uh, so that kind of uh, dictated how you know I approach each text. Meaning the text exists without me. Someone wrote that text. Now I've learned about this text, so this is what I'm talking about. I'm going to enter into a dialogue with those texts and not making them speak, but bringing other people into the conversation so that they discover the text.
0: That's that's such a beautiful way of putting it. And it does shine, you know, reading through the book that these texts stand alone and you're not here. Like, (laughs) that's kind of like, you know, um, redoing what colonialists do. Like, hey, I discovered these people. (laughs) So you're approaching this from all point. You're like, I didn't discover anything. And it, it shows you're putting these texts like they're here. We just didn't pay attention. We overlooked them. We um, so, this is that's it really does shine through. Now, I guess the title, you know, of course, it's like sexy. So, the three S's, which is <laughs> it's like super. I was like, this is an interesting one. Um, and so, can you tell us a little bit like, was it intentional, this alliteration of S's?
1: <laughs> well, you know, I wanted to use Serge Gainsbourg's uh, title, which was sexy and sun. Uh, Because I like that song. I mean, that song is like beyond risque. Uh, And I like that song because it's in English, but the song itself is in French. So whenever I'm using something, I was trying to have a symbolic element for myself that other people may discover. So I thought that to have an English title for a song, which is in French, shows a kind of slippage, a shift. And it's what the book is about. Uh, you know, because sometimes I used uh, sexy images for the first book, Dangerous Creole It's a sexy image, but the content of the, of the book is going to destroy the very exotic, eroticized image. Uh, so I was like, oh, with this title, are like, oh, that's sexy. Yeah. You know, I may discover something interesting. And then I read the book. I'm like, oh, she's serious about it. She's like, no, no, no. Black women are not sexual objects. Let's go uh, beyond that. So that's why this title um, for me was important because literally sex, you know, I'm studying uh, sexuality and nationalism uh, and sex for me is at the background or forefront of everything uh, I'm doing. The sea, I'm from an island. I'm looking at islands. Uh, I remember someone was reading uh, the book and it was like, well, you know, you have seen the title, but you don't. about the sea I'm like when you talk about an island you talk about the sea it's you know it's implied but I realized oh if you're not an islander you don't understand yeah you know you live in a space where it's surrounding by water when there's a hurricane you're always afraid that the water is going to come in when there's an earthquake you think that the island is going to go down so when uh, you know water the sea is always there but then I thought self because literally For me, with the first book and the second book, it's all about the construction of identity of the self. But even if in the title, self is singular, but in fact should be selves. Because my writers have different vision of what it means to be a black woman, what it means to be a black man, or a mixed race people. So they affiliate themselves different ways. Uh, So that's why I thought it was important to have self, in this to show that in fact self is almost at the heart of it, not as an object of investigation, but really at the element from which of those writers are going to write who they are, how they see the French Caribbean and how they see their relationship with mainland France, continental France, the motherland or, or metropole. So with one title, I was trying to do <laughs> A lot of things that will excite me, you know, when when uh, I write, uh, and of course, as I said again, sexualization, you know, I need to have sex somewhere, uh, so that when <laughs> when I talk about sexualization of female bodies, sexualization of islands, people understand what they mean. Mm-hmm.
0: And it's um, so I just the, this part about the sea you're completely right in terms of, like, if someone's not from the island, then they're not going to see it. You had a very well-written sentence that I'm going to paraphrase, and you said, well, you know, the sea is an important character here. Like, let's not forget, this is not a passive character. And I was like, you're very right. Like, the, <laughs> the sea may not have words, and, you know, people tend to, when we're writing about these stories, the sea is it's kind of put to the side. It's not really, it doesn't have its main voice. But your title puts it out there that like, no, this is not a passive character. This is a main character in these stories and how people identified with them. So it was very, very, um, yeah, you just bring something to the forefront, which is super, super interesting. Now, oh, sorry, no, go ahead. And and when you think about it, I'm looking at
1: transatlantic context. Mm -hmm. So you have the Atlantic in it. Uh, so, so that was interesting when I had this comment. I'm like, I'm talking about people, first of all, who were taken somewhere from Africa, then shipped to the Caribbean. And then also of uh, French settlers or, you know, colonizers who left France to go to the Caribbean and bring, uh, you know, enslaved Africans. So there's movement also. So this is why I put the sea. And in my head, it was clear. But again, I realized in the introduction, I may need... Uh, to write a little bit about that, uh, about this point because it's not clear for everyone.
0: Mm-hmm. And speaking of the introduction, I mean, you had the perfect way of <laughs> introducing the sea as well. You talk about your experience on the train. I mean, yeah, I'm so sorry. So, <laughs> okay. like, just please let us know. What a way to like hook people in, by the way. <laughs> just to, you're like, hi, my name is Dr. Cootie and I have a story for you.
1: <laughs> well, and again, it goes back to lived experiences mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, it took me a while to, you know, like sometimes we live little traumas and we're not aware it's a trauma and still you're like, you know what, I'm going to grapple with it and how I felt. Because, you know, in this little um, little train uh, going up to – it was funny because we were going up uh, to, to a church uh, cathedral on top of a hill. So, but, you know, what, was ha- what happened in between oh, <laughs> Was, yeah, it yeah. kind of be, beyond to risky. Tell uh, us about
0: it because, well, I know. So maybe our listeners will, you know, well, they're going to want to be interested to see how this relates to why the sea is so important. I mean, everything just aligned for you. That was probably a moment that you have to write this book. <laughs>
1: yes, uh, because literally, you know, when I'm in visitor train, you you have this man talking to me. And obviously, you know, I could see he was destitute and I wanted to be a nice person. I was in the train with one of my friends, living in France, and she looked at me, she was like, with her eyes, she was like, don't even dare, don't talk to the guy, you know him. But then I've been living the US too much. I was like, oh, well, you know, our eyes met. So he was like, hi, so I was like, hi. And then he was like, where are you from? Me not thinking, I was like Martinique. And when I say Martinique, it was the end of it. From there, he went downhill. Uh, and, you know, literally all hell broke loose because he was like, oh, Martinique. When I was a sailor, I was in Martinique during the, th- you know, sec- I think it was the Third uh, World War, second one. And he was like, and Martinican women, they were so generous. They were so open. And I was like, ew, ew, ew. Uh, and, and he kept on going about you know, all these sexual exploits. And I'm like in front of him and he's looking at me and I'm like, I'm not these women. And he called them doo-doo. And I was like, oh, please, come on now. Uh, so that's why uh, it was important for me to talk also about the you do So in that space, uh, so I don't know if you've read, uh, you know, Aimé um, Césaire's beautiful Cahiers d'un retour au pays natal. And he has the same, it's not the same, he has a similar experience in the train, you know, the main poetic voice where the blackness is being thrown at you by all those, you know, white onlookers looking at you. But here it was not simply blackness. It was a blackness sexualized and with an erotic twist. And believe me, I was not, you know, like dressed in a, any kind of sexy way. I was just going up to a cathedral. So I knew I would have to, you know, be like yeah, dressed
0: properly. Yeah, that's not where you're hitting the club. So, <laughs> no,
1: but, uh, and I think that was very important to me. It was the way this man saw me. And though he was destitute at that particular moment where he was looking at me and rewriting me Mm -hmm. in the train, I felt literally helpless. I was like, what's happening? And I thought it was important to grapple with that point, meaning that some people, when they ask, that's why I hate the question, where are you from? The minute they ask this question, they're going to put you in a box. Mm -hmm. And then after they put you in the box, they start applying a lot of stereotypes a lot of particular definition about your identity and those are nothing to do with you so but again as you said he was uh you know when he was a sailor he was in martinique on a big boat and met all those beautiful martinican women and Mm -hmm. you know live his life as a you know so the sea is everywhere if you pay attention like Mm -hmm. any encounters you have people will be traveling by boat at least in, in the beginning of the century. And w- military men will be going to the islands, the mm. colonies. And then they will have sexual encounters with local women. And they may have read things or they are going to experience things and they keep on, you know, propagating these old ideas about women of color just being sexual objects.
0: Mm. And it's, yeah, like first, that's such a cringe-worthy moment. You know, it's it was just one of those things where, and. I think this happens a lot to black women where as soon as someone just stares at them, their history is rewritten. And those words are so powerful because it's, um, it, it happens right there before your eyes. It's a nonverbal transaction that both parties can feel. And you can feel someone looking at you and just instantly portraying something that is not you at all. So it's, um, It takes us to your first chapter, you know, the doo-doo strikes back. (laughs) It's such a, it it made me laugh, I have to say. And it reminds me of, you know, the concept of when the, you know, colonized are writing back. Can you tell us why you spend time dissecting um, the word doo-doo and doo-dooism?
1: Because, again, you know, people who are going to look at me, who are going to talk about the doo-doo, or look at other women from the Caribbean, they think they know what they're talking about. But doodoo is a Caribbean word, which means darling. It's just, you know, my mom will call me doodoo. But if you go into the French dictionary, then you find a uh, French woman from the Caribbean. So already you could see how this kind of exchanges between, and, and I'm about to say men, but you know, between travelers going to the Caribbean meeting, uh, you know, women, beautiful women, and hearing the word doo-doo put the two together and in the dictionary, doo-doo becomes, you know, a trope. So that's why I wanted to talk about this because doo-doo is a trope which is presenting as a reality. Because for us from the Caribbean, doo-doo is not a sexy woman. We have other words for that. Uh, But when I read literary work, and that's why I spent like, a long time, and one of my reviewers was like, what are you talking about that?" And I'm like, "Well, you don't know, but in fact, I'm uh, critiquing how some literary scholars have been theorized doo-doo and Duduism. And when I read, uh, you know, some uh, scholarly work, when I uh, when I discover that the Dudu is from the eighteenth century, I'm like, "No, it's not. It's from 19, uh, It's from the nineteen twenties when the word enters. You know." The dictionary at that point. Before you had other women of color; they were called ménagères. They, they had other terms. So it's a trope, a trope uh, which have evolved, because you know the the, the black woman or women of color from the Caribbean has been sexualized since the beginning of colonization. But she meant different things at different moments. In the 1920s, in the interwar period, when, you know, the average Frenchman was beaten up after, you know, that, the, I mean, a lot of people died after the, uh, the World War I. So you, she, be, she became this kind of icon, helping white men at the time to feel powerful. Because supposedly that doo-doo, that women of color only want white men. So already that's wrong on so many levels.
0: Mm-hmm. And it it's I, I like how you mentioned how at different moments in time they were different things and it contributed to the expansion of the French Empire. And it wasn't just um their sexualization and this is where you you know link sexuality to nationalism and how these two are related. And You know, tell us a little bit more about how, because you emphasize this in the book a lot, that we need to contextualize these texts. If we read them from the lens of a 21st century, it's going to look wrong. It's going to sound wrong. (laughs) So I think, you know, you set the tone for that very early on. And, you know, you say this is a self for them that meant something. Um, I really, I appreciated that because you let us know the fact that we need to play things by their rules and see it through their lens. We need to take the context into account.
1: And it's hard to do that, you know, because I really try to pay attention to presentism, you know, this kind of impulse to just throw all that we know of the present onto the past, which is, you know, I'm sure I I, I didn't manage to do that all the time. But because I'm a very judgmental person, so I'm like, ooh, why are you saying that? Uh, but at the same time, then I wanted to put myself in the background and let their voices say what they have to say. And then we could judge it or not. But I really wanted people to realize, okay, their vision of what it means to be Black is different from us. The vision of what it means to be a woman is really different but that's okay because then we can see how we have evolved from their time to our time and I really believe that we should not you know belittle their vision because they lived in a time where everything was way more horrible by now mm-hmm. and when you live, when you read some of those novels particularly of the women literally one of them is saying uh oh it's hard to be a woman Particularly when you're women uh, of color, and that um, Maya Capicia. So one of the characters, Maya capesia is saying this, and literally this sentence is found in all the women I'm examining. Like it's hard to be a woman, and when you are a woman of color, the burden is even heavier. So it's important to recognize that because then if we we cannot say, oh, they they were not as you know like radical that over people. They were living in, the ta- in a time where this kind of, you know, radicalism was not possible. Already talking about oneself at that time, when you're in a colony where the only creed is France and the glory of France, that's radical. So sometimes we, we have to reframe how we see, you know, being radical or, you know, being a fighter. There, there are different ways to fight you know, someone could punch someone in the face or take a pen and try to rewrite the narrative. And this is what they're doing. They're rewriting a particular narrative from the early uh, colonization time period. So I wanted to give credit to what they were doing at that particular time and show that uh, as human, we are not perfect. Maybe, you know, my age shows I'm very cynical. Uh, You know, I don't. I don't want heroes. Everyone is about, oh, this person is a hero. I don't, I don't, believe, I don't believe in, in heroes uh, because we're human. And you know because we're human, we're making mistakes. And I think, in fact, when everyone is trying to be extraordinary and being a hero, we are not allowed just to be us, just to be faulty individuals and to embrace that. Then there's always a kind of quest to be an ideal version of humanity which does not exist. Mm-hmm. So with these Ooh. writers, particularly the, the male writers, uh, Tardon as a, <laughs> there's no characters in his book. They're all <laughs> horrible people, all of them. <laughs> uh, but I think it's important to show that because if you think about M. Césaire's beautiful text, then you have Le Nègre, you have the beautiful black man standing and fighting. Mm. But what about the others? If you're not that perfect, resilient, uh, combative figure, who or what are you? Mm-hmm. So that's why I wanted us, or at least me, to think about you know how humble can I be and just look at this particular representation of selves and see where I can see myself, where I cannot see myself, but honor what they have to say because in the 1920s and the 1940s saying what they are saying is not easy now we can't say more things because we're in a different period and systems oh my, i mean there's still oppressions <laughs> This is not what i'm saying yeah. but so that's why for me it's important to pay attention to historical moments
0: that's um yeah i appreciate this this concept of selves you know now we're getting more into self versus selves and they're not perfect, and you you know you talk about that a lot in the book. You meant you highlight, you know, you highlight the qualities that they bring to the scholarship, um, versus you know the gaps in their thinking. But then you also talk about well, the gaps is not because like they're a terrible person. Period. You well, you talk about you know they're a system of the communities and the cultural, uh, their cultural production of the time. Essentially, it's not. Um, You know, I think what we'll get into a bit later, how Tardot and how they analyze women, (laughs) you know, black women and what they contribute to the text, even though it's a little bit problematic. But, you know, I really like how you humanize them. I mean, you say, well, you know, we have to consider the context. They're only working with what they know and what they know at the time mirrored a lot of what the white Creoles were doing. So, but just before we, you know, we move forward, I wanted to talk about, you know, your previous book, Dangerous Creole Liaison. I never know how to say this word. Um, I'm going to say in English and in French, never works. So DCL. Thank you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That works.
0: So, which was published in 2016, you discuss the dialogue um, of political identity between continental France and the Caribbean colonies. So is sex, sea, and self taking us in the same direction? Are you building upon it or is it a different direction?
1: So, yes and no. So, literally, when I wrote the first book d'Angelo-Cueur Liaison, I thought I could squeeze many chapters. <laughs> and then I realized, oh, my, I've got two books. But what is important uh, to realize, at least in my mind, is that when um, I wrote *Angelo Corleone*, so I looked at the period 1806, um, 1897, and you know I already looked at the inter- uh, interconnection between sexuality and nationalism. So then I build, for sure, I build on that. I look at the tropes of Caribbean women. Being uh, used as a symbol of a nation, and I look at white Caribbean women and black Caribbean women. So it's also gender. I focus more on white creole. So you know, I was already thinking about my methodology, and also realizing, oh, those white creoles—they're rewriting the narratives. They—they're telling France. Your vision of colonization of history is wrong because you do not talk about us, white Creole. So that was very interesting to me because, you know, then I realized that whiteness is not one block. You have different layers. Mm -hmm. And literally, we have to remember that then it's Europe looking out outside the Americas. If you're not from Europe, then even if you're white, you don't have uh the same type of power so this is the kind of things you know those inter, you know okay like sexuality layers of power uh historical moments because they're always right at particular times and they're always kind of you know deploring the the, the, the loss of of power so i articulated dangerous créolisation liaison as a kind of archaeology Uh, you know, literary archeology span from a Fulcajan point where I'm looking at how knowledge is being fabricated via discourses, Mm. like, but looking at history. So of course, you may think that when I look at history is chronological, but I'm looking at particular moment in history when I can see how my writers are rewriting the narrative. Mm. There's a revolution, they're looking at it and they're like yeah but you know this is what we did so sometimes they lie uh (laughs) for them it's not lying so again it's the question of truth you know with the story with my grandmother and my granddad Mm -hmm. you know like the same period they they
0: saw it differently Mm -hmm. you know yeah yeah, it's true it's not lying it's just different facets of truth
1: (laughs) yeah Exactly, different <laughs> facets of truth, and some of them are closer to a lie, but th- that's why you have to pay uh, a lot of attention. So when I wrote the, the first book, I-, I had to read a lot, a lot of historical, supposedly neutral uh, you know, volumes, and then I realized, yeah, but even some of them are some biases. So it's kind of um, uh, interesting. So already looking at sexualization of women, Then I decided, okay, with sexy and self, I'm going to look at what black writers are doing, but I wanted to think about complementarity of gender. I wanted to look at both women, that I put first, and men. And and then doing this, I realized that although I started with a framework, which is archaeology, of literature, literary archaeology, when I look at, you know, the way knowledge is being built, now I'm looking more at the way fiction, fictional fiction, you know, fictional knowledge impacts reality. So, you know, when we think about fiction, we think, okay, fiction, we also have to suspend, you know, suspend, our, our idea that is the truth, we know that mm-hmm. fiction is not the truth. But in fact, novels sometimes imposes particular narrative frame, framework on us mm-hmm. and have an impact in the way we think and the way we behave. Because the doo-doo is a literary construction.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And suddenly in the train, this man was looking at me and talking to me about the doo-doo as if this persona, this construction was mm-hmm. a real person. Uh, Mm -hmm. So that's how I realized that those two books are connected. I would not have been able to write Sexy and Sex without writing Dangerous Zone." I could say that with Sexy and Self, I'm going deeper. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, in fact, I'm widening Mm -hmm. uh, the the discussion because I'm still looking at the idea of a trope. And now uh, I, I call this trope, AOC or AOC of imaginary, which is appellation contrôlée. Uh, you know, if you think about camembert or champagne, you know, you have those particular, <laughs> those particular standards telling you that a camembert or you know, champagne can only pro- be produced in a particular space in France, in mm-hmm. a particular territory. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they're not recognized as original. Mm -hmm. So then I realized, oh, okay, so this trope, the doo-doo, when people hear the doo-doo, they think, oh, French Caribbean women, and they ground this, and they have all these ideas about uh, the doo-doo. So right now, in fact, we could also see that the doo-doo for me is a kind of theoretical tool where I'm looking at what does it mean to construct knowledge on tropes when you pretend the tropes are real people, mm. or when you pretend the tropes are walking in our reality when they have, they have been, uh, you know, creation of travelers, French travelers, or French literary critics. And people think they know what they're talking about, but uh, really um, they don't. So the beauty of writing two books. Is, you know, when uh, supposedly I was, you know, I wanted to write one, but I realized, yeah, I mean, you're not allowed to write a thousand pages book anymore. (laughs) They don't want that. Uh, And which is good because he allowed me to really think about the stereotypical desirability around women of color. What do I do uh, with that in the second book? What do I do with? fiction where do I put the emphasis about writing narrative rewriting them so this is what the second book is trying to do trying to do a lot of things but really trying to show with this idea of uh, literary anthropology how those novels or fiction impact you know like impact reality Mm
0: -hmm. and you know it's I really liked how you brought in the novel concept. This is not going to be too correct to say, but I will say <laughs> one of the reasons that brought me into literature was because I read a lot of things and then I thought, well, I like to read. Um, and I was like, I think I know a little bit of history <laughs> from you know the novels that I was reading, um, especially sub-Saharan um, African literature. They were not divorced from the political that you know setting that was happening. Um, whether it was environmental crisis that I was not seeing at the time, but now the older I am, I reread some books and I'm like, actually, they're t- they're letting us know about the environment in Senegal in 1970s, for example. You know, so I thought that I liked history because I was reading novels and it doesn't scare sk- I think if I approached history without novels I would be off put I'm like I don't want to know what's, this is a lot of numbers and a lot of people that I don't have like a link with but something about novels and literature there's a story and the storytelling makes it real and it gives these historical characters li- like life and there's a sort of relatability so when I saw how you put in quotation marks, you said archives (laughs) and, you know, historical documents. I was like, actually, you know, she's not (laughs) wrong. Because like you said, people are rewriting um, a lot of things. And so why not include novels? So can you talk to us how you include novels into this framework um, as important reference points when talking about the past? Well, because
1: for me, uh, novels cannot be separated from life. At least the type of novels uh, I'm looking about. I'm not talking about experimental novels in the 20th (laughs) century. Uh, I'm looking about novels that were written from the beginning quote unquote of times, you know, like 18th century, 19th century, maybe early uh, 20th century, when the writer has something to say uh, about the world. So it's still the vision of the writer, but then for me, the, the the those novels they present historical element about ways of thinking and ways of seeing the world at a particular time. For instance, if you think about construction of gender, it's really clear. But mm-hmm. when you look at a relationship between characters, you're like, yeah, that that's a particular time. But then that's true. They may talk to us about historical facts, but at the same time it makes, the way they talk about those uh, historical facts makes everything more interesting, because we can relate, you know, and you talk about this idea of, uh, the fact we can relate uh, to some uh, of those uh, elements. So the world is in those stories, and those stories are also in the world. Uh, And something which is very important for another project, I was reading an article, um, Or a book review that Marie Condé did about about, uh, Jacques Corzani in 1972. So, Jacques Corzani wrote this kind of encyclopedia, his first, because he's done a lot of work on French Caribbean. And his first encyclopedia was about, you know, uh, French Caribbean literature, literature antiaise. And she said, so she's, you know, she's explaining and I like the way uh, because, you know, she's a very strong woman and she has particular opinions. But at the end, she was like, okay, he says all lot of that, but he doesn't talk about politics. Mm. And literally her point was you cannot divorce writing from the Caribbean, even poetry, from the time and the space they were created. So even if a writer is simply going to talk about a blue sky, but if you're talking about the blue sky, when there's political evil and difficult elements, then, then you realize that even, uh, you know, this presentation of poetry, which is, you could say mundane and, you know, like as nothing original says something about the time because then it's escapism. It's trying to escape reality. Uh, and I think for, when you think about sub-Haran uh, literature or French Caribbean literature, it's you cannot again, you know. Politics or political views are a part of why people write. When I look at my women, they even before it was a term, it was a slogan. They, you know, they make clear that the personal is political, mm-hmm. uh, because they live in a space where their bodies is being impacted by colonialism. Yeah. is what they are talking about mm-hmm. so when they talk about themselves it's never simply about themselves mm-hmm. they are talking about how their selves is being attacked or reacts to a particular element around them and sometimes I think that's a particularity of a lot of literature born in former colonies or at least the former French colonies so I think, that's what I always keep in my mind. Then when you talk about archive, you know, like if you look at a definition, someone will say, yes, you know, it's a collection of documents. I'm like, yeah, well, but it's not born out of nowhere. Someone put (laughs) this, you know, someone put (laughs) this collection together. Mm -hmm. Already putting this, even if you just like take different documents and you check that in a box, because sometimes this is what archives are, Mm. you arrange them. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking, why about, uh, you know, considering a novel as a way to organize facts, frame of references, thoughts, ideas on a page. And then when I look at that, even if the story is horrible or I don't like the story, I can still realize, oh yeah, I can use this because here I do have a true historical element. But here, have an idea about how people thought at the time,
0: and so, to how people thought at the time. One of the novels I'm trying to remember from the book, but um, it was like love story, which really mimicked the love story between you know the French Caribbean and you know France. And it's um, I was like, yeah, there's something to say there. It's a it's a cultural nationalism that you you know you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us more about this concept of cultural nationalism that you reiterate throughout your book?
1: So, you know, when I started to think about uh, cultural nationalism, I thought about how do we consider an idea of a nation when you see yourself uh, being a different nation within a bigger nation, Mm -hmm. how do you see culture? So that's why I'm thinking about cultural production and Because if you think about it, enslaved uh, individuals, they came from different groups and they didn't speak the same language at first. Of course, they're all black, but come on. It's not because they're all black they have the the, the same culture. When they arrived in the French Caribbean, they had to recreate a different culture with whatever they remember from their culture. It's not as if they forgot everything but then they they kind of slowly over time got together with their recollections and created something different. The same with French Creole. They were from France, but then they arrived in Martinique and there they had also to recreate their own element. So whenever I'm looking about those novels, I'm also looking about the ways my writers consider self, but when they consider self, they also consider the nation. So uh, the construction of how do we belong to the nation is based on a common language and a common um, culture. But sometimes a common language is not even French. (laughs) It's Creole. Mm -hmm. But in the text we read, everything is in French. But when these women or men were in Martinique, they spoke Creole too. So... So it's how do they locate, situate themselves between two spaces. So that's why I like this idea uh, of cultural um, nationalism because it's more fluid. If you think about construction of culture and how also to keep power. So literature, this is what I mean, it's like literature and then culture when you link that to the nation, it's all about trying to take power or to get power. Sometimes it's symboling power because you don't have real power. So when I think about cultural nationalism, I don't think about, you know, a I don't. I, I don't see the political as, you know, organization, uh, governmental organization or parties. No, I see a way about how to get power over the space. And sometimes it can only be symbolic
0: mm-hmm.
1: because... You're not the one in charge of the regime uh, you you lived in, and again, you have many groups in the French Caribbean. How did they start to define themselves? When you look at music and dance, then you can see that Afro descendants started to, you know, like define themselves in a particular way, mm-hmm. distinct from the white Creole. But still they're all living in that island
0: mm-hmm. so it's it's still a, a creation in this mix that they're trying to make something um essentially they're they're making meaning from themselves <laughs> um, i just I'm thinking about like a big cauldron and you're cooking and you're like i'm I'm gonna mix these spices <laughs> and,
1: then and see it, what yeah what's up and and you could see that the the cauldron is still cooking because mm-hmm. if you think about You know, like two years ago in the pandemic, so everyone was pushing statues (laughs) down so that they would break. In Martinique, you have this too, and they will destroy statues of Victor Shelcher. Though for a long time, Shelcher represented abolition Mm -hmm. and the friend of, uh, you know, uh, newly liberated enslaved people. But a fringe of the population wanted to have Black heroes.
0: Mm-hmm. They wanted
1: to have this vision of the past, with, which looked like them. Mm-hmm. So they were like, and you know, at the same time, it's good to fight for blackness. But you know, when you think about history, history is always going to let us down.
0: Yeah,
1: there's no heroes. Because uh, when you start willing to be, you know, you're looking for heroes, then you start changing the history, mm-hmm. because this is not the way things happens. And even if people are not always... They don't always see the point of what Victor Shesha did. He did a lot of things. And at the time, uh, people of color, they loved him because for whatever he was doing. Now we may have a different vision of him, but we cannot just go and break down everything and try to erase him Mm -hmm. when he was a part of the abolition movement. Mm
0: -hmm. And I think you you phrased this term, which I really liked, you know, you call out the obsession with filling historical gaps, <laughs> you know, in the archives. And I was like, you know, that's, it's true. I think I'm guilty of that. I'm guilty of seeing like a gap and being like, I, I don't know what it is. It's like this need to like fill it in, but then you have to remember, or I remind myself, like it's, it's empty. You you can't fill it. And if you, if you fill it, you're going to distort you know, information, you're manipulating information to fit a particular um, gap and that you're really not doing a service to the, the entirety of the story. So maybe sometimes pieces are left to be pieces.
1: And I think it's an impulsion of, you know, the modernity project. We have to put everything in a box and everything has to make sense. Life does not make sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Sometimes we just have to let it go. And then uh, realize that when historical events happen, they don't, it's later on that historians are going to give them a particular order. Mm-hmm. And they're going to pick elements and they're going to put other elements uh, on the side. And then of course you, ha- you have to keep on rewriting history and bring in what's you know, forgotten. But when you do that, you still have to be careful about your own biases. Of course, I would like a glorious story of black people Mm -hmm. in the French Caribbean. But what I want may not really be what I will find. Mm -hmm. So what do I do when what I found is not what I like? I kind of just destroyed what I found (laughs) because I don't like it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But again, I understand that representation is important. So at least you could change the space around you and you could put elements, you know, you could move statues of people. You're like, okay, why have a statue of Josephine de Beauharnais when we know what she represents? That I understand. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, she's a historical uh, figure. Yeah. You take her, you put some, somewhere else. Well, Martinique had just beheaded her several times. So,
0: yeah, that's it. <laughs> so,
1: so, so it's, it's interesting, because then you realize it's because the present is not settled. But then people look at the past and they think that if they look at the past, they would make their present better. But I don't know if it's the best approach.
0: Yes, it definitely. I think the concept of cultural nationalism you talk about shows how it's continuing. It never ends. It's going to continuously look different to the different generations um, in terms of how they view themselves, linking Um, art to the nation and what it means to them. But to your point on representation, um, you represent Caribbean women authors in the book, um, but then you speak about like this epistemology of emotions that they bring to the table and how it's different um, in terms of how the Caribbean black males Use, you know, use uh, emotions versus the woman. Um, so can you tell us about how this emotions forms, um, you know, productions of knowledge? Um, but also, I just have to say the you put in a sentence, which I like highlighted, uh, took all my markers. But, <laughs> you know, you speak about in terms of would there even be a negritude movement if it wasn't for the Nardole sisters um, literary salon. And I remember my professor, uh, Dr. Piki Caro at Mason, she, she was the one who said it. So rereading it here, I'm like, we need to see more of this sentence around. I respect the Negritude movement and Senor is personally my ancestor, <laughs> you know, um, reigning from Senegal, but also it's like this other side, um, of, women who also were a part of this movement and who emotions is so often seen as feminine and negative, distracting, all these negative connotations. But you bring to the table, you're like, no, this, these were also, like, emotions was used to produce knowledge.
1: Exactly. And, you know, when I think about the Narcissist, they created a salon. They give a space. Only giving a space for ideas to thrive, that? But... A great contribution. Because if people don't meet, they cannot speak, they cannot exchange ideas, and they cannot create great concepts. Uh, So, but at the same time, you know, so that's why in my introduction I'm very clear. uh, I have a lot of respect for the negative movement, but I do not, uh, you know, constrict. The Nardale sisters to the negative movement. They were before they were doing something wider. I think, I think that the negative movement belongs to a wider idea of black humanism. But I want to look at what the Nardale sister did for what that was. And in fact, it's when I'm reading them that I have this idea of, yes, expectim- expectim- uh, I can't even speak anymore, epistemology of emotions, you know, how. Do you? So it's not a phenomenology where I think about uh, sensation. It's really, uh, you know, how you're going, your uh, emotions, your feelings are going to help you create knowledge and a knowledge which is particular, which is really refined and very, very intellectual. Because, you know, so we live in a space. Uh, if you think uh, about Cart- Cartesianism, where it's all about reason, okay? So if you don't use reason, you're emotional. And if you're emotional, obviously, you're feminine, uh, you know, but again, we are human. Our emotion, our fear, we are, when we feel something is for a reason, there's something bad coming, we have to run. So-
0: <laughs> You don't just ignore the feeling and say... Yes,
1: exactly, (laughs) because, you know, you want to be reasonable and you see, you know, a meteorite coming down the sky and I'm going to be reasonable and just staying here. No, you see it. you're like, oh, snap, you're scared, you run. So this is, and when you read particularly um, Susan, she has two main points that I kind of liked, like Pitié d'Afrique, Pity of Africa, where literally or pity born out of Africa. And by pity, you know, it's a kind of self uh, you know, a concept from a Catholic belief where it's caritas, where you it's love with a big L, meaning that you're there to support or sacrifice yourself for others. Not my cup of tea. But <laughs> this is how, you know, she imagined being a woman, which is, Again, this idea of complementarity of gender being supportive of men. And of course, when I'm looking, uh, even through my titles of the two sections in the book, he says, she says, he says, you know, it's a very binary heterosexual organization because the novels I'm looking at, this is it. If you want something about LGBTQ, it would be 21st century and looking at what we're, uh, you know, what people are producing. But I'm looking at early 20th century literature, and this is what we have, we call organization of gender, which is binary, male, female. Uh, and then emotion is going to be on top of that. The strong woman, which is going to be there and support the man and help him whenever he falters. Uh, so this is how I realized that emotion, in fact, fa- facilitates uh, knowledge, helping you to find yourself in a bigger world. And if you think about dancing or music, is the same thing. How do you make sense of whatever doesn't make sense, really? And then I realized it's also connected to this idea of black humanism. And I think this is what Sangor was trying to uh, to say. Uh, not that you know, like black people. Only feels but don't think, but the way they think goes more through their feelings mm-hmm. as opposed to reason, whatever reason is, because reason has given birth to World War One, World War II. Uh, MS is a kind of critique, this kind of rationalization of the Enlightenment. You know, when you push uh this idea of, you know, trying to be rational, then oh slavery, yay! And, you know, you have all those elements that you can justify because you're just erasing how you feel. You're like, eh, nothing really comfortable with that. You're like, ah, eh,
0: you know. And so, it also would look very weird if, well, weird to the time, not to us today, if singer was like, we should pay attention to our feelings, you know, as a way of introducing negritude. They would have um, probably not received it too well, but like you said, you know, if you bring in the epistemology of emotions from a woman's perspective, maybe it's a little bit more accepted at that time. But it, it defines negritude, I think, a little bit more in depth of this concept of Black people feel more. And they do. A, there's this. Well, you know, I just always remember how negritude was introduced to me in the classroom. It was like one section was Black, the other section was white. One had like you know feelings and cooking it was it was just such a I was like so so we're just more like artistic <laughs> exactly exactly and
1: you know reading several um essays from Senghor I can see when he first said this you know problematic things you know uh you know I cannot even think about it right now uh Negre or something something but literally. Later on in the 1950s, he, you know, he's like, this is not really what I was saying. I didn't want to say that they are more creative. I'm just saying that the way they think, mm-hmm. they don't think in a linear way. Mm-hmm. And this is where emotion will be going. And then I realized reading uh, Susan La Cascade's I'm African helps you better understand what Senghor was trying to explain. Uh, maybe not well when he first iterates uh, this, uh, but literally it's you know with your body that and how you feel about particular point that you're making uh, your decision about the world. And Claire Solange in the book she's a very angry <laughs> young woman at the beginning because she's trying to uh, she's trying to digest. Uh, a lot a lot of information is not working. But at the same time, in that particular book, you have this idea also of Catholic or Christian humanism, how to support the others. So it's kind of interesting uh, from that perspective. And the, the Netherlands are also doing the same thing when they're trying to bring art back they're talking about music, they're, they're talking about opera, they're talking, you know, opera and whatever, they're talking about a lot of different things uh, to show that culture how you feel is also a way that you derive great knowledge about yourself uh, yourself and others. So this idea of epistemology of emotion, I think I will, tr- I, I'm, still a, I'm still at the beginning of it and it's going to be book free where I'm going to study dance, and I, I, I will really uh, you know, grapple a bit more with this uh, epistemology of emotions, but I really believe already that the women I'm examining the first part, they're really showing how they feel. The men are using rape, violence on female bodies to create an emotion on the reader. So that's the main difference. Because at first I was like, oh yeah, only women do ep- epistemology of emotion. No, 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 the men do that too. And then you realize also this is what Aimé was doing in some of his poems. Literally, sometimes they want to create disgust in the reader. Because some of the things you're reading, uh, particularly in Tardon's second first, I mean, in the first like 10, 15 pages, you have a gang raped of you know, enslaved Africans on the deck, on the boat. you like, And it's pretty graphic. I'm like,
0: dude, give me some time, like. And when when you speak about that, you also talk about how they're mimicking what white Creole scholars did. Yes.
1: So, because then it's masculine approaches. Mm -hmm. Because the masculine approach is to think that the uh, female body is there to take. And the women, they're always aware that this is coming both ways. (laughs) So that's why in their um, writing you know, the idea of respectability politics is, is very important. Um, so sometimes I remember I was arguing with a scholar at one point. He was like, well, it's so bourgeois. And I was like, respectability politics in that particular context is not simply about being bourgeois women like I'm prude. It's like I'm in a space where the bodies of my female ancestors were taken and raped so if I, want to do no- if I want to have nothing to do with sexuality, that's resistant. If I don't want to be a sexual being, that is resistant because I live in a sexual world trying to sexualize me. So I think that this idea of celibacy or idea of not being a seductress is also a way to counteract the idea of a doo-doo. So respectability politics may uh, encompass more than just the, ooh, prude bourgeois. Ooh, that's like risky, that's sexuality, yuck. Because the way they talk about dance and the way they talk about joy and pl- is pleasurable. So mm-hmm. It's coming from a sexual energy, but the sexual energy is not directed to men. The sexual energy is from the women for themselves.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and that's the-, the self, that it's there's a self that's linked to nationalism, but there's a self for the self.
1: Exactly. And if there's pleasure, the pleasure is going to be for them, not creating themselves as pleasurable for the others. Mm-hmm. So when you read some of those elements, even in Susan La Cascade, a cousin that she's going to marry eventually, uh, we say, oh, she's a very cold woman. She's not like the kind of, you know, mixed race woman being sexy that I thought she would be. But then in her head, she's talking, she menaces about dancing during the carnival, and the discussion is like her moving her hips, and you know. So I'm like, mm-hmm. oh. And her anger, in fact, is how the sexual energy is redirected <laughs> because she's in a space where she's afraid of being sexualized.
0: Yes, and it's that these, although these stories are from, you know, that time, it still persists until today you know, and like you're speaking and I'm either thinking of movies or even personal people I know who they're, it's not that, you know, it's not that they're off put, it's it's because they're keeping a self for them. And it's an act of resistance in this sexualized world. And this is why, you know, to your point, novels need to be included in this line of art in within archives and you know not just historical documents but novels can tell us a lot about things that we see today.
1: Exactly and the way we we people used to think. Mm-hmm. And have we evolved from that or not? So you know because people think okay sexual liberation, if you read something about you know women saying, oh no no I want to be covered from here to here, that's mm-hmm. just a passé. I'm like, no, it's not because this person is telling us something. You have to look at the space where she's writing from. Yeah. You know, and then you realize that she doesn't want to be uncovered, because even when she's covered, she's going to be
0: sexualized. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing, you know. Even if you're covered, you will be sexualized. That you are on your way to a cathedral, <laughs> and you are still sexualized. I'm yeah. sure, like when you woke up that morning, that was the last thing that she thought.
1: Yes, and I don't. And again, the funny part is why, uh, when you think about the doo doo. She's supposed to be, you know, like light skin, very uh, sexy. I don't see myself like like that. I was like, uh, seriously, seriously, no. <laughs> Uh, but the, 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 this is what we're grappling with. So that's why, you know, as I said earlier, I spent so much time talking about the do do-do and duduism doism because in fact, it's not simply do do-do and duduism I'm looking at. I'm looking about this French imaginary, which is, as I said, a fabric of modernity, creating these AOC of imaginary, creating those tropes, putting people in boxes where you don't really see yourself there because it's still happening. Mm-hmm. And as you said, you, you will look at some videos, you, you will look at some movies, and you still see this kind of sexualization. And as I said, for me, it's not sexuality, which is a problem. It's like a commodification uh, of it, mm-hmm. when it's just transforming to uh, a, you know, an object or something to be sold. If it's your body and you're selling it, good for you. But then if it's, you know, if it's your body and someone else is transforming that to sell it, and you don't get anything, then that's a problem.
0: And then that becomes a problem. So I guess, you know, as we wrap up, readers take away what they will from the book. So, you know, but while you were writing, I don't know if you had a vision of somebody sitting by a fireplace or by the beach. This is a heavy topic to take to the beach <laughs> or like facing the sea. Um, I like to do weird stuff like that. I take these heavy books everywhere with me. But what would you want your readers to take away from your book?
1: So basically, I wanted the reader to discover a new space, a new culture, and to be open to it and to be open to the difficulty that other peoples have and to and sometimes to grapple with that because the difficulty other people have are with you <laughs> as a reader or your ancestors, but just to be open to the encounter. Um, so that's why, literally, I spent a lot of time with that book, because I wanted to try to make sure I said what I meant, and sometimes you don't always manage to do this. Uh, that's why, again, as I said, I spent a lot of time with the doo doo-doo doo and do-doism to show uh, the reader, this One I'm doing, because sometimes you're looking at me and you're looking at me like this, okay. and you're not aware of it. So I want you to be aware of you know, you cannot say, "Oh, I love black babies; they're so cute." Or the same way, I "I love like Asian babies." It's you know, it's like <laughs> you know, you will never see a black person say, "Oh, I like, I like," you know, like white babies. We don't do that.
0: <laughs> yeah. So,
1: you know, people are starting to think because you know, there, there, there are difficult topics in my book. Uh, you know, when I was I was uh, working with a copy editor, I was like, "Okay, you know what? So and so." Um, yeah, yeah, get ready. And she was like, okay, no, that scene was okay, but that one, really? Really, I'm like, yes, I have to talk about it. That's kind of violent, I know. And that's kind of weird. And even the violence, she's like, all the things about the weird sexuality. I'm like, yes, I know. Uh, so, you know, new curiosities, yes. Because as I said, things like, the doodoo is not an 18th century creation. It's a 1920s link to what's happening in, in Europe at the time uh you know uh not saying like oh you know black people have never done anything they didn't didn't, Mm -hmm. didn't wait for you know scholars born in France Mm -hmm. uh to tell them about themselves Mm -hmm. uh we at least if there's one thing that people will remember from the book is that people from Martinique and Guadeloupe at the beginning of the 20th century they were already thinking about who I am what I'm, where am I going what is my relationship with France they're not just victims they you know they, they are even if sometimes their ideas for us may be wrong uh they are trying to define themselves in a world that keeps on changing and a world that keeps on being a big global thing
0: mm-hmm
1: Because they're also dealing with globalization when you think about it. So, you know, uh, hopefully, a a reader, again, you know, we think some of the methodology may be useful for them to help them read other texts.
0: Yeah, I think it's, yeah, you definitely provide um, methodologies that can be expanded. And I hope people do take that away from it because. Um, Whether it was the epistemology of emotions or, you know, looking at novels as um, historical documents to include, these are all things that can be included in different um, fields or centuries. Um, But, you know, I guess to move that question on to you, how do you walk away from the book and how did you feel... After you finished writing it, did you feel like a changed person? Did you <laughs> how did you feel? I was exhausted. <laughs> of course. <laughs> when I was done with it, I was exhausted and I was so
1: tired of it. <laughs> but at the same time, I was happy that I could say what I wanted to say, at least most of it. So that's why when I submitted the first version and I got evaluations, I have to rewrite the second version. It took me a, a long time. So I wanted to make sure. To do justice to those people, to those writers, even if I don't always agree with whatever they were saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can, my female writers, I can feel their pain. Mm-hmm. And I wanted that not to just be something, oh, they're in pain, e-. but I wanted that to remind people again that we're dealing with humans. And that's why, in fact, I picked those books because they're not about being heroes. And those writers, for me, they're not heroic, they're human, that's beautiful. There's nothing more beautiful than being human and having shortcomings and just embracing that. So this is what, in fact, this book also, for me, it was like my personal therapy, you know, from the first (laughs) scene in The Train, when I arrived at the end, I'm like, okay, that's it. I'm purged uh, of all uh, the negative elements. But you know, the first scene, then when you keep it in mind when you read mm-hmm. basically backward then you you understand the importance of the scene because mm-hmm. for me it was a very historical scene really enough it was two different worlds two different people him in his mind you know still thinking about his time when he was stationed as a sailor in the yeah. Caribbean colliding yeah. with me in 2004 being <laughs> a graduate student at the University of Virginia and being like what is wrong with you? Yeah. <laughs> Two different worlds in this tiny space. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we're not aware of that. And I'm sure, the, I mean, this man
0: has forgotten all of that. Yeah, he doesn't even know. I'm he doesn't just, even know. In, in he, his head, he's probably still dreaming. You know, he's just there telling, he's probably still telling his stories. You know, and me, I'm like, I'm, and I'm still thinking about it, at
1: least in the book. After I finished with the book, I was like, okay, I'm fine, I'm done. You're Let's prepared, move on it's to the, the, of the beautiful
0: moment of the present and the past literally combining in this transatlantic space because you were <laughs> so and, this... exactly. So I want
1: so I wanted to give to start with that and then uh, you know, over the reading of the book, hopefully people will be able to grasp that very moment when you have, as you said, the past and the present colliding in a moving transatlantic space. What do what do we do out of that? How do we come out of that encounter? So mm-hmm. yeah, so I would be interesting to see what people have to say when they <laughs> finish the book and they're like, whoa, that was too
0: much. Oh, not enough. I think it's a lot. I think yeah, the, the... I mean I, I cannot say it's easy, but I can say that it's, you know, it's um it just divorces a lot of the images that we're used to seeing or in bringing it to our conscious forefronts instead of just saying, yeah, you know, we know what these tropes are, but really taking a closer look to, do you really know what these tropes are um, and the impact of these tropes? That's for me, that was one of my takeaways. Like these, we speak about tropes, but we don't really understand how, far it can go, (laughs) you know, and your story is a great example in terms of how this man, I mean, the way you started it off, the impact is like he is still carrying it in his head. So let's just say he had a a, a position, a a powerful position. Can you imagine the damage that he's done because of these stories that are existing in his head? Um, And about the many stories that continue to be perpetrated? So it's, um, I really thought about the impact of these tropes from all angles, you know. But um, I guess I also have to ask, I'm curious, what any next projects? <laughs>
1: so the next project is a bit, is about to be about dance. Uh, I had a title. I just have to find where I put the title of it. But basically, it's going to be something like um, Radical Joy or mm-hmm. Dance as Resistance epistemology of knowledge uh, and what I want to do mm-hmm. I've started writing articles about that is looking uh you know in how during um, slavery time mm-hmm. and slave Africans have been alter you know alterating their dance movement original dance movement ad- adapted to the new space you know like mm-hmm. and then of course the masters and like that the mm-hmm. colonizers are like that but they've been using the drums to keep uh, or renew a different type uh, of connection to, to to the culture and you know fusing with this new space. So, I mean, after writing this book during the pandemic, I was so depressed. Okay, uh, you needed I realized, a dress. Yeah, it was hard to finish it during the pandemic because that book is dark. The the topics, especially the male writers, whoosh, uh, that that that's hard. Um, so I was like, okay, the other book, and, and I told the to my students because sometimes you know we do colonialism. And sometimes I I, I teach them a, you know we do a dance routine for forty minutes where I teach them some traditional dance move from Martinique uh, to see how people you know have been I don't like resilience because this term is like kind of everywhere yeah it's everywhere you know, it annoys me doesn't mean anything um in fact how people persist or how they live their life not survive how they live their life and have joy no matter what. Uh, and through dance, you can see this. That's so what I tell my students. If you have a beat and a body, you can dance, you can be happy. Mm-hmm. And this is what we saw with enslaved Africans we, you know, on weekends, whenever they could, they would get together and congregate and then create beauty uh, through dance. So that's the next book. Something think- for fun.
0: That'll Um, definitely be exciting to read and probably dance too. (laughs) You know, that will definitely be um, great. But thank you so much, Dr. Ku. Hopefully, we'll um, invite you again and we can talk about dance. (laughs) Yes,
1: please. Thank you so much, Fatima, for the invitation. And, you know, and I hope that our discussion today is going to, uh, you know, find listeners ready to enter a new world. Thank you.